Brother David Taggart will give us our first lecture this morning in relation to the letter to the brethren at Sardis. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain are the subject in relation to that. And we are asked to read Revelation chapter 3, the first six verses. So if you would turn that up, please. Revelation 3, first six verses. And unto the angel of the ecclesia in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore now thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the ecclesias. Let's give our attention to Brother Dave. Watchful, strengthen the things which remain. There once was a, a dead ecclesia in a dead city. Uh, not that the city was a ghost town, but its glory was past. And not that the ecclesia had closed its doors, um, but it was living on past reputation and in the process of dying spiritually. Whether or not the numbers in the ecclesia um, or uh, the attendance had declined. Such was Sardis. As we consider Sardis this morning, uh, as we have with many of the other ecclesias already, let's consider how our own ecclesial situations, uh, our own personal conditions uh, are similar. Um, and take lessons as appropriate. Uh, because, you know, for individual conditions lead to ecclesial conditions. And ecclesial conditions of either growth or maintenance or decline or death. Many might consider spiritual condition uh, of an ecclesia to be measured by numbers of members. Um, 
That, to my, in my opinion, is a bad criteria to use. Uh, rather, the level of knowledge, the number of spiritual discussions as compared to worldly discussions, uh, the depth of such discussions, the uh, level of interest in participating in such discussions, uh, the depth of conviction in doctrine, and the priority of members um, uh, that members place on living their their faith are much better criteria, don't you think? Um, so we might say that the message to Sardis was, wake up! Uh, you know, do you even realize you're about to die? Uh, recover before it's too late. Now, let's try these fancy technologies here again. Um, and we have the map of where Sardis was located with respect to the other ecclesias. Um, it's inland in the fertile Hermas River Valley uh, and south of what you can't see here but we'll probably see a little later, a little salt lake uh, where salt was actually recovered for use in a similar way to the way salt is recovered from the Dead Sea in Israel. And so the ecclesia that was about to die was next to what was the equivalent of a Dead Sea. Uh, some interesting parallels. Uh, Sardis had been one of the foremost cities in Asia Minor for a few centuries, uh, but well before the time that we have the writings to us in Revelation. Uh, but it was in decline. Uh, while most of the other ecclesias that we've already touched on uh, were in bustling cities of growth, uh, Sardis was a relatively quiet and smaller city, only able to reminisce on past glory. It was located on what was the east bank of a Pactolus River uh, in this Hermas River Valley, uh, and it occupied the rocky spur of Mount Tumolus, uh, on the side of that valley. In ancient times, Sardis was really well fortified up there on that plateau uh, and easily defended and as such became the capital of the Lydian kingdom uh, but successively over time passed under the control of the Persians and then the Greeks and finally the Romans at the time of uh, the writing of Revelation. Um, the most impressive uh, building in ancient Sardis was the magnificent temple to Sibylle, Artemis, Diana. We went through this yesterday. All sort of uh, the same goddess that went through, through time. Uh, that was built in the 4th century uh, B.C. The temple was 327 feet long, 163 feet wide, and had 78 of what they called ionic columns, 58 feet high. Uh, no little building. Some of these columns are still standing today, and we'll see it shortly in some pictures we've got. Um, the importance of the city was uh, because it was also on some of the commercial trade routes, the trade routes that went uh, through to the uh, to the east and to the west. 
and they developed there quite the textile manufacturing industry uh, and developed a unique dyeing process. Some of these things you'll relate as we go on to garments and so on that we've had mentioned. And also uh, they were uh, highly capable in jewelry making and it's also said of Sardis that it's the first place ever where coins were minted for use in trade. Now, although it was up on a uh, plateau, it had been taken a number of times in battle. A very secure fortress up on the, uh, on the plateau. Great walls, three, three sections of walls, one behind the other. If they got through the first wall, we back up to the second and we've still got defense. But they were still taken. Um, uh, once in 549 by Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians, and again in 218 BC by the Cretes. Um, it's kind of interesting because they didn't come in the normal way. And you think of uh, difficulties in the ecclesia. Uh, things come in the back door and uh, catch us by surprise. And that's exactly what happened in Sardis. They were defeated twice by not being watchful. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I, there was something else I wanted to say here. Uh, the ruins of the city that we find there, um, there's two levels. The top of the plateau, where you call the Acropolis or the fortress, and then much of the lower city below it, which was not fortified, but you could run back up into the, the fortress if, if uh, attacked. And the uh, interesting part is that the erosion of the, uh, of the hill has now covered most of the lower city, and uh, archaeologists have not had a great interest in this city in recovering a lot of it, so a lot of it's just still laying there buried under the uh, erosion, sort of a dead city, and people are dead in their interest to even dig it up these days. It's sort of all interesting. Even today it's uh, uh, not very much focus on it. Now let's consider a couple of the details as to how the city had fallen twice uh, in the past by carelessness, by not being watchful. Um, in the attack by Cyrus they had the city sort of bottled up and of course they're quite comfortable up in the fortress looking down and Cyrus is in the valley uh, and, and his forces um, and as well the, the, act, the best access to the city which was most well protected also had this Pactolus River that looped around in front of it that acted somewhat like a moat so you know it was pretty secure and they were pretty confident up there just kind of watching so one day uh, the one of the soldiers on the wall in the fortress dropped his helmet and bounces down down the hill and being a little bit careless and and overconfident he just walked over the wall and got outside and walked down the special path uh, to uh, to get his helmet and of course 
the observant Medes and Persians below were sort of saying, oh, that's the route that you get up to the city. And the next night, up they went by this route that the careless soldier had shown them and, uh, and came in on the far side of the city where there weren't even any walls, uh, came around the steep cliff side and uh, where they hadn't placed any watches, they were so overconfident. They were just watching on the front wall where you would expect an attack. And so in the back door they came, unopposed, and took the city while everybody was asleep and not even watching. Uh, some spiritual parallels for us too. Uh, and the same thing happened uh, uh, the second time when Antiochus, uh, the great attacked them as well. They came in the back way, the unprotected way, uh, climbed the steep cliff and took the city by surprise at night in the dark uh, and while well, people were asleep and not watching. Uh, and so it's kind of an ominous lesson for us, isn't it? Uh, uh, this great city of prosperity that was the capital of the empire uh, of that small area at one point uh, didn't endure and its citizens lacked the sort of foresight uh, to look ahead and, and to be watchful and, and there they sit, uh, destroyed. Um, the, uh, some of the pictures that we'll get to show uh, how unscalable some of these three other sides of the uh, Acropolis were. In many ways, it's, it's, you know, we're more familiar with Masada. And it's something like that, except on one side there is a more reasonable access. And all Masada also happens to be next to a Dead Sea, don't they? Uh, uh, so there's an interesting parallel there. Um, the inhabitants were so comfortable and confident uh, when under attack, they just didn't bother much uh, uh, about protecting themselves and were surprised and overcome. Uh, now, they'd also, twice in their history, given up without a fight. And there's some interesting parallels for us too in that, I think. Um, when Alexander the Great came along, they thought, hmm, a little bit of discussion, then collapse, give up. And it happened again when the Romans came. Hmm. Let's talk. Give up. Best way to go here. Uh, do we see ecclesial parallels in some ways for us too? And we just give in at times. Uh, you know, to go along with things and and uh, not stand up and be counted. Um, in A.D. 17, just a little before the time that we uh, are focusing on. The, uh, there was a huge earthquake in the area which really devastated the city and it never really was rebuilt well after that even though Rome uh, helped them quite a bit in fact the city and the inhabitants were so grateful to Rome that they for a while renamed the city as Neo Caesar New Caesar uh, thank you Caesar for all the the money we'll rename the city after you uh, for a while but it was living on its past history and glory. 
And as well, you know, it declined because the trade routes did too. There was a large community of Jews there in Sardis, and the community was quite well accepted. Uh, and bylaws were even made to accommodate their needs and worship. Uh, and uh, as we can see, there was very little persecution, very little difficulty. Um, as long as you didn't make waves and kept under the radar, um, Things, there was no testing, no affliction that we can see when we read uh, the readings that we've had this morning. Um, and sometimes affliction is something that will actually strengthen us, isn't it? Uh, uh, times of difficulty strengthen us. Um, and so it's also a way in which they could somewhat uh, integrate and if you avoid confrontation, uh, you just sort of assimilate into the community that you're in. Now, nothing is known, scripturally at least, about Sardis other than what we, we can read in, in Revelation. Uh, we don't have much, anything else that we can find. Uh, it appears, though, that their history was somewhat similar to that of Ephesus, having made a very good start and then leaving their first love. Uh, Sardis, it appears, though, degraded or degenerated more than Ephesus. Although there were stars, angels, leaders there in, in the Ecclesia, as we can see, that had kept the faith. Uh, there is no known leading brethren, as, we, as we've read of, of some of the other early Ecclesias. Not to say that they didn't have some, but we have no record of, of uh, leading brethren that actually lived there. And that may have contributed to their fall. The imperial cult uh, was well established as it has been in other places and the requirement there to room, ro sorry, follow the Roman uh, beliefs and worship the state gods at the expense of being considered a traitor uh, or an atheist and in jeopardy of having your goods removed and imprisonment and banishment or execution was, was there. Um, but it seems like not much enforced, and as long as you kept quiet, life was comfortable. Um, now, there's an interesting tradition of the times that applied not only to this city but elsewhere, that you weren't allowed to approach uh, a pagan god or enter their pagan temples if you had soiled or stained garments. Some of the things that we've read about in this, this reading today. Not only that, in the city of Sardis, there was a bylaw, city bylaw, that said uh, anyone who had soiled garments at public events was removed from the list of the citizens of the city. Your citizenship was removed. You were stricken from the list. Um, now, of course, that's an interesting thing for a textile city, of course, that was into cleaning and dyeing and making goods and textiles of that nature and somewhat the appearance was, was a good thing to have. And so we can see uh, in Jesus' allusions here uh, to defiled garments and white raiment, uh, how that would relate to the people who were in the city of textiles. Um, if thou shalt uh, not watch, I will come unto thee as a thief as well. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee 
if you haven't kept your garments. He didn't pick his examples for Sardis haphazardly, much related to their city and their life. Um, now, another little thing before we get into some other detail is that death and, and preoccupation with that seems to be uh, a thing that existed quite a bit in, in uh, this city. They had this huge area called a necropolis and extensive tombs and burial mounds that uh, were quite extensive. And so there was a lot, of, a lot of elaborate things going on there and death-related uh, events and preparation and processes thereof that the pagans were following. And so when we, when we have Christ speaking to them about death, uh, even that relates to, uh, to the city in which they lived. Um, now let's, let's move on here. There's an a, a artist's conception of the city up in J and K and L is the area where all the secure Acropolis was and in the valley to the left of that is where the lower city was. You'll see that in D there were tombs and E there's uh, this necropolis that we talked about. Uh, they had um, various uh, typical things of the city, the temple, the stadium, the theater and so on. Um, we played with the satellites again and that's the old one where the red circle is. You'll notice in there the Salt Lake. And as you get a little closer, you can see it better. And that's the best I was able to do on this zoom in. Uh, Sart, uh, Sart Muhammad, as you can see there circled, is the name of the city today. The other circle to the right of that is what's the Pactolus River. And above it, the other river that's bigger is the Hermes that we, uh, that we mentioned. There's all there is of the Pactolus, which is not much more than a creek. Uh, we're looking at the Acropolis now in the lower valley. And to the left of it's the bit of the access to the city, or the, the area that you, they could come up and attack. Um, this is up on the area in the Acropolis, looking down the other way, and the river is below them. There's part of their secure area in the, uh, in the Acropolis, and even some of the fortifications that are still left, as you can see there. Uh, pretty tough to scale that wall. And if you have those things sitting there, uh, you don't worry too much about somebody coming in. And they didn't even post a watch, as we've said, in some of the areas. Pretty elaborate houses with frescoes that look this good now. Uh, must have been much, much nicer before. Uh, this is an interesting place. You can see the Acropolis in the background. This is a lower city where is the mint, apparently. And you have to imagine what life must have been like then with the uh, uh, smells and fires and whatnot. Uh, not so pleasant. Um, typical coin from the mint. There's a gold coin from the mint. They were the first city that was ever they say, to have minted gold coins, which they also got out of the Pactolus River. Not the coins, I mean, but the gold. Uh, there's their gym. The, uh, uh, and, and look at the size of the trees related to that. It was no small place. Uh, there it is, the gymnasium complex, bath, 
education center. Um, there's the uh, pool that's part of the gym. Life was not too bad there. Uh, the public washrooms. This is the Jewish temple that's been found, the entrance. This is the main area of the Jewish temple. It would take like a thousand people, you know, quite the population. This is the front of the temple where uh, there'd be the menorah and the books and so on. Uh, another part of the temple is viewed with the Acropolis in the background, the fortifications. And this is part of the temple to Artemis Diana. And these columns on the right, you don't get the perspective of them until you see somebody standing beside one. Uh, no small part of the temple again. There's Diana Artemis as we looked at yesterday. One of the tombs, very elaborate. And then the burial mounds just by the edge of the city. Uh, many of them. All the effort related to death. And so uh, these pictures show to us as we looked at yesterday that you know we're not following cunningly devised fables. These were real brethren in real cities living difficult lives tested as we have been um, and much time has passed but many things are still the same. Now Sardis uh, as we mentioned had no significant pressure from pagan religion, no Jewish opposition of significance or accusers, no apostolic impostors that we have recorded, recorded no Nicolaitans, uh, no prophetic ecstasy going on. Um, it seems a model of inoffensive Christianity, unable to distinguish between the peace of well-being and the peace of death. Um, we've already touched on the idea of uh, death spiritually and, and that it probably didn't mean that the Ecclesia was a group of elderly folks uh, dwindling away in numbers and unable to main their, maintain their activities. And why do we say that? Because, you know, it had a name, a facade uh, of being alive. So if you had a name like that, then it's not likely you're significantly dwindling in numbers. Um, but its real condition wasn't alive. Its condition wasn't visible outwardly, uh, as it would be in the case of a declining ecclesia as far as numbers were concerned. But, as we've said, they seem to be dying spiritually, living on reputation, on past achievement, just as the city had, going through the motions, having an appearance, but little depth behind it. Um, but there were a few remaining faithful. And so Christ uh, mentions uh, this and encourages the few who have not uh, fallen away. And he says to them, you know, I know, I know, I understand. Uh, I understand your underlying motivation as well. I empathize. I know what you go through. Um, you are a name ecclesia, ecclesia in name, having a reputation but not too much life. Uh, but reputations can be deceiving and aren't always accurate. Uh, uh, those who have dead faith can only produce dead works. And Paul in Romans reminds us that there are certain things that we can be dead in, such as toward sin, uh, but not toward God. Um, but we need to be alive in Christ. 
And finally, too, uh, in the Hebrews, also he says, uh, purge dead works. Serve the living God. Now in verse 3 of this uh, reading, we see the phrase, the things that remain uh, or survive. And uh, refers to spiritual vitality. Lack of spiritual vitality is indicated by lack of vigilance, just as the city was not vigilant at times in history and was defeated. Um, waking up before it's too late, as in, or as uh, watching out for stains on your garment, which we have been figuratively given at baptism. And what stains are they anyway that defile a garment? Uh, that we've been given at baptism. Because since those who are conquerors or overcome uh, later on in Revelation have had their robes made white, uh, it seems that the stains that we're talking about here relate to compromises, uh, things that qualify or degrade. Um, you know, being content with mediocrity may be one. Uh, lacking enthusiasm to confront a heresy, uh, lacking in depth of conviction to develop an intolerance for evil or wrong doctrine, maybe some of those things. So such an innocuous ecclesia and individuals uh, easily blend into the community because they don't do things that make them stand out uh, and attract attention to themselves to be worth persecuting. So uh, the admonition that Paul wrote to the Ephesians applies here in 5 and 11. Uh, you know, and in fact, I want to look at that. In Ephesians 5 and 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Uh, Stand out uh, because you're reproving those things uh, and therefore keeping your garments clean by not participating. Uh, so there's a threat that we have given to us here of judgment um, when the allusions to the day of the Lord are made as described by Jesus here and, and as are often described elsewhere such as Matthew 24:43. We also share this idea of an imminent judgment, an imminent return of Christ, don't we? Watching for, uh, as we might watch for a thief in the night. It may come quietly. A thief in the night may come quietly. And for us, it may come quietly too, as part of uh, distraction and confusion and excitement of some worldly event uh, going on that changes the focus of the world and, and the return of our Lord is here. And so we and they are admonished to be watchful uh, because they weren't presently. And so the question we ask of ourselves too is, are we? Are we watchful? Um, you know, Ephesians 5 and 14 where we are. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. Christ shall give thee the... I get the impression in this 
part of Revelation, that Jesus is being almost uh, trying to kind of shake the Sardinians uh, from sleeping, uh, from falling into a coma. Wake up. Uh, get with it. Uh, open your eyes and see what's happening. Uh, what's happening with your ecclesia? It's dying, it's practically dead, and you know, do you even realize this? Um, do something about it. Don't be just comfortable with it. Strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die, as he says. Um, because they will grow as a cancer. Um, and we ask ourselves, of course, are we different? Um, well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, do we have spiritual paralysis as well, in some ways? Probably so. Um, Jesus said in Luke 21 and 36, Watch and pray that ye may escape all these things. And let's hope that we do. Uh, Luke 22 and 32. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Once again, for us, an admonition. Their works were not perfect for bar before God, uh, but such works as they had appeared to impress men, at least the overall ecclesial works, making for some reputation among men, but not God. And works not being perfect before God is the most important for us as well. Um, because we need, as we read in Colossians 2 and 10, and are exhorted there, to be complete in him. And watching. And what is this watching? The Greek word that we have, uh, that it comes from, gregario, is translated watchful or watch. Uh, keep awake. Be spiritually alert. It combines the idea of being physically awake with spiritual discernment. And this word combines the sense of being physically there and spiritually together. Spiritual condition of readiness and alertness. And so we have the concepts that have been given to us elsewhere uh, about that. Watch out, uh, you know. Matthew 24, uh, the signs of the fig tree. When his leaves appear, know that summer is at hand. Uh, so all you also, when you see these things begin to occur, know that it is near, even at the door. Uh, and similarly, when uh, later on in that same chapter, Watch therefore, ye know not what hour your Lord is coming. It'll be like the day of Noah, when the flood came, in the days of Noah. And the same in the parable of the ten virgins. Um, the same principle. Five were wise, five were foolish. Uh, all went out to meet Christ the bridegroom, but only five had the watchfulness and preparedness. The others slumbered and slept, just as Sardis weren't prepared. Now, let's go to the uh, fourth and fifth uh, verses that we read in this chapter. Um, 
Thou hast a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Um, he, and we might say worthy of the grace of God, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Um, garments were important things in that, in that city, as we've already mentioned. Um, garments symbolize and indicate one's attitude as well, one's behavior, one's condition. Um, just as they weren't allowed to wear stained garments uh, in the city or casual clothes, uh, you know, so should we not. Um, you know, if uh, we've used the example in the past, uh, Judy's mother used to use it, uh, if you were going to have an audience with the Queen of England, how would you look? Um, or in your case, whether you like your president or not, if, if you had a, an audience with the President of the United States, what would you come in looking like? Casual, sloppy, dirty clothes, uh, or not? Um, you know, and here we're in the presence of the Son of God, the creator of the universe, the one who will be king over the whole earth, much greater than the Queen of England or the President of the United States. How should we be? Uh, how should we look? How should we behave? Um, how should our garments appear? Uh, both physically and spiritually. Um, Revelation 3 and 4 reminds us that Sardis, not all in Sardis, had defiled their garments. What's that mean? Um, we've touched on it a little bit. It seems to me symbolic of mingling with the pagan life of their day, or in our day, mingling with the things of the world and the beliefs and the philosophies of this world, and thus defiling the purity and putting a stain on the garments that we've been given at baptism. So our assignment is to keep those holy garments put on at baptism, as unspotted from the world as we can. Now there's another point that we can make here, I think, that's very critical, because some of us, I think, may come from what we would call waning or dying ecclesias, unfortunately. Um, but don't you take out of this chapter, or this, these verses here, that, especially when you compare verse 1 and verse 4, this concept, that membership, even in a dead ecclesia, will not necessarily interfere with an individual's acceptance by Christ, as long as worthiness exists. as long as there's white enough garments at judgment. And I think that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. Uh, very important for us to keep in mind. Uh, now, let's touch on a couple things before we close here. Um, there appears to be two kinds of books uh, judgment, books of record being kept here. 
one of which being described as the book of life in verse 5. Um, and we have this in many of our, our writings and commentaries, and I think it's an interesting concept. Just as in accounting, uh, you keep the rough daily journal book uh, in which you justify things day by day and so on. And that at certain periods of time you make an entry into the real journal, the one that counts, the one that goes towards the year end and the final statement. Uh, and so the concept of this with respect to us in our lives, one being our daily journal of the good things we do, the things we don't do well, uh, and then that gets summarized and then transferred where our names already exist in the book of life that would be used at the judgment. And the final tally is marked over there so that the book that Christ would read at the judgment is this one, not necessarily the daily journal. Uh, And I think that's what we're talking about here in verse 5. From that um, final statement of the book of life, Jesus will confess, as it says here, the names of those who watch and have not defiled their garments. And the word confess here means confess from out of something, as in one selected from among others that are being rejected. So in this book of life that we read about here, that final accounting, uh, some names will be highlighted or stand out confessed as ones that will be invited to enter into the joy of thy Lord. The others won't stand out. Uh, and may that be our lot. And as promised in, in verse 4, uh, may that be our lot, to walk with him in white, uh, to walk with Christ in white, because they are worthy to be confessed and stand out and have the grace of God. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. And if Jesus was to send us a message today, would he say it differently? Probably not. Watch. Be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain. <laughs>